The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The word of the Lord. A reading from John 15, verse 1 to, chapter, or verse 1 to 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, all I would ask is that by your Spirit I would be faithful to your word, edifying to your people, 
and glorifying to your son, Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. To troubled hearts, his disciples and ours, he's painted a picture, given an image. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? For in my Father's house are many rooms. He's painting a picture of a glorious future, not a heavenly one, not a removal from the earth to some sort of ethereal spiritual existence, but rather he's using ancient Jewish marital imagery to point to a future marriage. The marriage of heaven and earth, the kingdom of God come in its fullness where God's will is done on earth as in heaven where our world would be shot through with God's justice, love, beauty, and peace, where all things would be made new. So what do we do in light of this glorious future? Trust in Jesus? Let our troubled hearts be encouraged, lay a hold of such a hope? Well, yes, of course. But there's more. As we've been seeing in this series in John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus has been inviting his disciples to live in anticipation of this future, to point to the kingdom of God come in its fullness in all they do and say and pray. But in light of this glorious future and Jesus' impending departure, the disciples are full of questions And underneath every single one of those questions is a larger one. How will we be the kinds of people that point to this future? Where will we find the resources? How will we then grow? Now, very often at this juncture, people like me, preachers, point to mechanical answers to that question. Well, you just got to do these things or believe those things and it'll all work out. Not working? Well, try harder. Have more faith. But this change, this growth, this transformation does not come about by way of a mechanical process. But as we will see here, it comes about through an organic process. So if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 15 as we see together the organic growth of the Jesus follower. Now, the disciples at this point have left the upper room. They're beginning to travel with Jesus to the Mount of Olives. And on the way, they go down through the Kidron Valley, and at either side, they would have ancient vineyards. And Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. Verse 1, I am the true vine, the genuine, the authentic, the real vine. Now, what? seems to us unnecessarily agrarian and cryptic would immediately be glaringly obvious to the disciples. For the image of the vine was used over and over again in the scriptures to point to God's purposes for his people. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of a God who in love seeks to mend what is broken, to restore, to renew his good creation And so when humanity first rebels against God, rejects his love, rejects his way, 
He doesn't come to them with the first question that says, what have you done? I thought I told you not to do that. But rather, his first question is, where are you? Where are you? He's a God in love who seeks to mend what is broken, to restore, to renew his good creation. And one of the primary ways God has done that throughout the biblical story is by choosing a people, Israel, to reflect his character, to live out his renewing purposes for the world, to bear witness to his call, to return to his love. Leviticus 19 is a great example of this. It's a grouping of laws given to Israel that defy organization. They cover a multitude of topics. But one phrase holds it all together. I am the Lord your God. Don't harvest your fields right up to the edges. Leave some for the poor in your midst. I am the Lord your God. Pay fair wages to your workers. I am the Lord your God. Don't bear false witness against another. I am the Lord your God. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. I am the Lord your God. Respect, honor your elderly. I am the Lord your God. Love the refugee, the stranger in your midst. I am the Lord your God. What's this telling us? Do this because I'm God? No. It's telling us that when Israel lives this way, they will reflect the character of their Lord and God. They will point to God's renewing purposes for the world. And in so doing, says Deuteronomy 4, they will lead others to behold and worship the God who calls them to live in this way. And the vine and its fruitfulness was used as an image to convey that purpose. But almost everywhere that that image is used in the Old Testament scriptures, it's used negatively, as we saw in our reading from Isaiah. And Jesus echoes that hard word in verse 6. Israel, I called you to bear fruit, to reflect my character, to live out my renewing purposes, to draw others to me, but you are producing some really crummy grapes or none at all. You're going after other gods. You're living no differently than the nations around you. You're neglecting the poor. You're practicing injustice. You fruitless branch. You're in danger of being cut off and consumed. But when Jesus says here, I'm the true, the genuine, the authentic vine. He's saying where Israel has failed, I fulfilled. I am the true Israel. I truly represent the love, justice, and character of God. I am the one who reveals God's renewing purposes for the world. I am the true vine. And now you, my disciples, verse 5, are the branches. It will be in you and through you that I do that work. My life flowing into your life. That doesn't come about mechanically. Do these things, believe these things, and it'll all work out. It's organic through a living, vital connection with Jesus, enabled by the power of the Spirit through faith. Okay? It's a sermon over, right? Just have a living connection with Jesus, and we'll grow into the types of people that point to the new creation in all that we do and say and pray. Well, yes, but it's not quite that simple. 
I suspect there are those of you listening to me that have taken advantage of the great weather we've been having of late to go out and work on your gardens or pot some flowers on your balcony. And you know that there are things you need to do, even as an amateur gardener, to bring out the very best in your plants. It's all about placement and watering and pruning and weeding and fertilizing. They'll all make a world of difference. I am the true vine, says Jesus. You've got to have a living, vital connection to me. You can't do anything without me. And, and, my father is the vine dresser. Now, a grapevine is a utilitarian plant. All it's really good for are the grapes. The wood's useless, the flowers are short-lived and all, not all that pretty, but the grapes... The grapes are what you're really after. And the vine dresser's only job is to bring out the very best in the vine, to bring out its productivity, to develop it and form it. And Jesus is saying to them and to us, you wonder how you're going to live in anticipation of that future, the marriage of heaven and earth? Well, my father is the vine dresser, meaning above everything else, he's absolutely committed to bringing out the new creation in you And through you. Now how does he do that? Verse 2. Every branch in me. In me. That does not bear fruit. He takes away. That sounds rather final. Rather fear inducing. Doesn't it? There are two ways you can translate that Greek verb. To take away. One is just that. To take away. To remove. To get rid of it. The other is to lift up. Depending on the context in the New Testament, that verb's translated both ways. So which is it here? As I understand it, one of the first things a vine dresser does with a branch that is still connected to the vine, still in me, as Jesus says, but not producing fruit, they'll lift it up. They'll carry a bucket of water up and down the rows of the vineyard. They'll find a branch connected to the vine that's perhaps down in the mud, covered with dust. They'll lift it up, wipe it off, put it back on the trellis, giving it access to sunlight, putting it back in an environment where it can grow. If you aren't producing fruit, the Father will first lovingly lift you up, clean you off. Perhaps it's first to bring you to confess sin and receive the cleansing of his forgiveness. Perhaps it's to heal a place of woundedness. Perhaps it's to remove you out of an unproductive environment for growth and into a more conducive environment for growth. Father, so committed to your fruitfulness that first he will lovingly lift you up. The next thing the vine dresser does to bring out the best in the branch, verse 2 is to prune it. A couple summers ago, Lori and I traded in years of aeroplane points to take the family to Europe for vacation. And we spent an extended period of time in Italy. And what's quite interesting about Italy is that it seems that every backyard is a miniature farm. You've got olive orchards and lemon groves and, and vineyards. One of the Airbnbs that we stayed at, the next door had a vineyard that was up all over the patio. 
one morning I came out onto our patio with a cup of coffee and began to just take in the view when an elderly Italian man came out of the nearby house and we said our chows, our hellos, and he had some clippers in his hand and he set to work and he was cutting back that vine and soon there was greenery up above his knees, more on the ground around him than there was on the vine. He was pruning vigorously cutting back that vine so that all of the plant's life and vitality and energy wouldn't go into more leaves, but into the grapes. Jesus is saying our lives, our community life together, cannot produce abundant fruit, cannot live in anticipation of that future marriage of heaven and earth without pruning, without cutting back. Begs the question, what, what, what does pruning look like? At times, pruning, I think, comes as we're brought to an awareness of sin. You can see its impact on us, on others, so that that might be cut away through repentance. At other times, that could come through exposing an idol, revealing where we put our true meaning and value in life, be it work or Money, family, beauty, success, reputation. Brought to see that those things will never fully satisfy. They're not worthy of our worship. We're led to lay those idols down in exchange for worship of the true living God. At other times, I think pruning takes the form of exposing our wounds. We've all been broken, hurt, wounded throughout life. We learn to cope with those wounds, which often keep us guarded, keep our hearts walled off from other people for fear that we'll be hurt again. And at times I found in my own life and in other people's lives that God reopens those wounds, not not to cause pain, but to reveal the need for a healing that only he can give in order that we might open up our hearts once more to others in love. Pruning could also come in the form of severing our dependence upon things, relationships, in order to foster a deepening trust in God. An example of that might might be money, something we often have dependence upon. The size of our bank account linked to our anxiety levels. The size of our paycheck linked to our sense of attractiveness or importance. Our time wrapped up in cleaning, organizing, insuring, repairing, storing all that we have. Severing our dependence upon money and things can foster deeper dependence upon God, thus freeing us up to utilize the things that we have in order to bless others. Pruning could also come on our priorities and preoccupations in life that, well, not bad in and of themselves, rob valuable time and energy and resources from what truly matters. Perhaps pruning calls us away from leisure to love, from rest to relationship, from consumption to compassion, from escape to engagement. I suspect by now you're probably recognizing something in your life, now or in the past, that could be seen as God's pruning. It could come in different forms, a prick of conscience, a person speaking truth in love to you, 
a circumstance that severs dependence upon transient realities. But as I'm sure we're beginning to realize, pruning sounds rather painful, doesn't it? But this principle runs through everything. How do you get gold from ore? You refine it in a furnace. How does a coach bring out the best in an athlete? You must train them. Ten more minutes of burpees. How do you get a fully flourishing adult from a child? You must lovingly discipline them. Jesus is saying here, being stretched, refined, disciplined, pruned, trained, it's never easy. It's going to hurt. We'll probably resist, delay, hold back those things that the Father is seeking to cut away. So it's important for us to understand that this is the work of a loving Heavenly Father. As one preacher put it, like any expert vine dresser, the Father will never cut away anything that would have damaged us to keep or benefited us to lose. So I'd encourage you, if you're experiencing that pruning work of God even now, don't resist. Don't delay. Let go. Repent. Lay it down. For it's an act of love. For like any expert gardener, the Father will never cut away anything that would have damaged us to keep or benefited us to lose. Now to this point, the organic growth of the Jesus follower sounds rather passive, right? Just stay connected to Jesus. Let his life flow into your life and allow the Father to do his work. But it's not passive. We're invited to participate in this work. For the means of our connection to Jesus is given by way of a command. Verse 4, abide in me. It's not just a command, it's a continual command. Go on abiding. A command that's given to a group. We need one another. We need a church community in order to do this abiding. Yes, enabled by the power of the Spirit. Abide in me. It's a command. So vital is this command that Jesus repeats it some ten times in these verses. Abide in me, dwell in me, inhabit in me. Then my life will flow into your life. My spirit will animate your spirit. Abide in me. What does that look like? Well, verse 7 helps. Abide in my word. Verse 9 helps. Abide in my love. Let's say you get a new piece of furniture for your home or apartment, as many of us have been doing in the midst of this pandemic, rearranging our indoor spaces. Now, if you bring that piece of furniture into your home, you're going to have to rearrange your furniture in order for that new piece to find its rightful place. You might even need to get rid of some furniture in order for that piece to find its rightful place. Abide in me. Abide in my love. Abide in my word. Let it dwell in you. Let it make a home with you. Let it move things around in your life. Let it push other things out. Let it argue with you. Let it shape you. Let it be the lens you look through. There's probably not a person listening to me that hasn't struggled with forgiveness. Perhaps even now, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness are dwelling with you. They've made a home in you. It's hardening you, allowing the one who has hurt you to go on hurting you, allowing them to continue to have power over you. Abide in my word. Abide in my love. 
In my 20s, a repeated betrayal in one of the most important relationships of my life left me bitter, angry, and unforgiving. The hard-heartedness began to bleed out into every aspect of life, every other relationship. And a Christian friend saw the trajectory that I was on and invited me to dwell in Jesus' words. Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who harm you. At first, I was angry that he had said it to me. How insensitive to not enter into my pain. Don't you know that what they have done to me? How could you say that? But then the word began to dwell. It took time, but it began to take root, began to make a home in me. I started to pray for this person, grudgingly at first, Not that they would change, not that that God would expose them or judge them. That would have simply stirred up that anger even more. I began to pray for their best, for their flourishing, for them to know God's grace and love and presence. And the anger subsided. The forgiveness came. The heart softened. The Spirit was enabling His Word to dwell, to inhabit There's probably not a person listening to me right now who doesn't struggle with worry and anxiety. How can we not whenever we turn on the news? Variant of concern here, geopolitical tension there, financial catastrophe coming here. Not to mention our own personal circumstances that are often fertile ground for worry and anxiety. Dwell in my word, abide in my love. Matthew 6, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink. Consider the birds of the air, how they neither toil nor reap nor sow, yet your heavenly Father cares for them. Are you not more valuable than they? Are you not more valuable than they? You are the one for whom Jesus died. You are the one who by grace can be adopted as his child. You are the one he calls his own who calls you friend. Abide in my word. Abide in my love. Let it live in you, dwell in you, make a home with you. Let it move things around in your life. Let it push things out. Let it reorganize your life. Let it be the lens you look through. Let me leave you with the word of encouragement that Jesus leaves with his disciples. Verse 16, I chose you to bear fruit. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. That's a glorious promise, but we've got to see that it's given in the context of fruitfulness. Whatever fruit you want to see grow up in you, that you might point to the new creation and all you do and say and pray, ask for it. He longs to give it to you. So let me ask you this. Are there matters of character you long to see changed? For the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control to grow up in you, to flourish? Are you despairing, desire joy, hard-hearted, and yearn for tenderness, unforgiving, and yearn to extend grace, anxious, and seek peace? 
Are there areas of brokenness, sorrow, injustice in our world that you long to see and be a part of seeing healed by God's grace? Are there people in your life you long to have hear and respond to God's call to come home? As I ask those questions, what comes to the forefront of your mind? Have you got it? I chose you to bear fruit, says Jesus. So whatever you ask in my name, he will give to you. So in light of that glorious promise, let's now pray. Heavenly Father, we wonder at the glory that in Jesus you call us friends. For you've revealed to us what you're doing in the world, nothing less than the marriage of heaven and earth, nothing less than making everything new, nothing less than bringing your kingdom, that your will would be done on earth as in heaven. You've invited us as friends to live in anticipation of that future in all we do and say and pray. A life that can only come about through a vital living connection with your son. And so we thank you that you've brought that about through faith in his death and resurrection. We thank you for your commitment to us in love that you will prune us for your benefit, for our benefit, for the kingdom's sake never taking away anything that would have damaged us to keep or benefited us to lose. By your Spirit, enable us to abide in you as you abide in us. May your word, your love, take up residence within us, that we may point to your love, your character, your renewing work toward a new creation. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.